life felt precious, like learning felt precious. Uh, reading fiction, read, watching certain movies, listening to certain music, creating certain things, it felt precious. Does it still feel that way? For me, it does. There is a sense in which there are particular parts, newer, evolutionarily newer parts of the human brain that enables the hardware to transcend the limits of the algorithms you are born with. This is why meaning and philosophy matter so much. I think we can change that ultimate value function you're talking about or determine it on the basis of a particular meaning or philosophy that we have about our lives. And I think that is profoundly human. This is Brain Inspired. What kind of reinforcement learning algorithms do our brains run? What kind will the future robots and AI run? Hey, it's Paul. It's Brain Inspired. Ida Momenejad and I answer those questions and more on today's episode. <laughs> Taking it up a notch there. Ida studies reinforcement learning and collective memory, especially as they pertain to the structure of the environment and how individuals interact with that structure. And she's done that for years in the academic world, but she's recently started a job at Microsoft Research where she'll continue that work and uh, beyond. So deep reinforcement learning has dominated the AI headlines for the past few years, with the successes of DeepMind's AlphaGo beating the world champion at Go, um, the networks that learn to play Atari games so well, and the list goes on. And reinforcement learning in general has been one of the major success stories in neuroscience, in terms of spanning all of David Marr's uh, levels of understanding, from the computational level goal of maximizing reward, to the algorithmic solutions like temporal difference learning, etc., uh, to the normal implementation in brain circuits involving the basal ganglia and dopamine. The reinforcement learning story has traditionally been divided into two families of learning strategies. Model-free learning, which is learning surely by experience, which is computationally efficient, but can't easily adapt to new situations. It isn't uh, very flexible. And model-based learning, which is learning by simulating lots of potential outcomes, uh, which is more adaptable and flexible, but is computationally more expensive than model-free learning, having to run all those simulations. Behaviorally, model-free and model-based reinforcement learning roughly map onto habitual behaviors, those you do without thinking about it, and goal-directed behaviors, those that require more thought or planning. Also traditionally, there are roughly two brain circuits uh, that model-free and model-based reinforcement learning map onto, and there's a continuing story about how dopamine uh, underlies the updates required in those brain circuits. But that's the old view. The new view is that model-free and model-based reinforcement learning algorithms and their neural underpinnings interact all the time, and that there are in-between types of algorithms uh, that span the spectrum of computational efficiency and flexibility. One of those in-between type of algorithms that Ida studies is called the successor representation, which she describes in much more detail, but basically uh, it allows you or an AI agent to remember some distant connections between things 
so it can skip steps along the way and thereby not need to run full-on simulations of a whole situation. And thus, the successor representation uh, framework has a nice balance of computational efficiency along with pretty good uh, flexibility. So we talk about all of that, uh, but spend the first part of our conversation talking about her background and how it's shaped her approach to science and life and the role philosophy has played and continues to play in her life. Visit the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 85 to dive deeper and learn more about Ida. To always hear the full version of uh, each episode of Brain Inspired, and to get some bonus episodes, you can always support the show through Patreon. Thank you, as always, to you beautiful souls who value the show enough to spend a couple of bucks a month on it. Speaking of beautiful souls... Ida, this is how I imagine it went down, and you can correct me, but there'll be no need because it's accurate, I'm sure. A young Ida in Tehran uh, was sitting around pondering her future and basically in an afternoon planned it all out and thought, you know what I need to do first is some computer science and some software engineering, and then, gosh, that's going to help me, but I really need to learn about philosophy before I go on and get a PhD in psychology, uh, which will I can translate into... Uh, neuroscience and computational means, and eventually land a, a, a job at Microsoft, <laughs> which I can parlay into appearing on a podcast with a, a super intelligent and charming podcast host. That's how it went, right? Uh, you got it right. Yeah, it was all on my vision board, including the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like your trajectory has been one series of deliberate, well-thought-out steps. Um, so I, I just want to spend a few moments pondering that because mine was super messy and I didn't know what I was doing at almost any step. But yours from the outside looks like you knew exactly what you're doing. Is that is that accurate? That's not how I felt while it was happening. <laughs> so what it seemed to me was that I was chasing certain questions or certain aspirations and the best approach at the time to me at each stage seemed like a particular discipline or other. And to to so it, to a lot of other people, it actually seems like a very messy trajectory. Um, but uh, you know, the the very young I, I actually when I was very young, I, I I very genuinely wanted to be an astronaut, and I was thinking about it in a very rational way. And at some point, so I was doing track and being good in math and everything. But at some point, I realized I don't like to be confined in small spaces. And that's the time that I realized, oh, no, I probably can never be an astronaut. Oh, so oh, that's physically small spaces. Exactly. I thought you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so at that time, I realized, all right, next thing. <laughs> Interesting. I have I actually have in my notes here, but because I, the question is like how to start out, right? Because everyone has a different messy uh, series of steps. And in my notes, it's, I have, should we just start out in space camp? What's the right way to start out to give us some grounding, you know? Well, as a, as a young child in growing up in Tehran, while there was a war for the first sort of uh, seven years of my life, um, I think that I would have really appreciated going to a space camp. My space camp was our um, a balcony where I used to sit for hours and look at the sky and then chart the stars and then uh, make up names for stars and connect them in random ways because I had seen it in books that people connected them and they have names but I didn't know that you can't rename constellations <laughs> I thought that's that I thought the rule is you just connect the dots and name it something 
So I kept doing that, and I thought, that's astronomy. You just uh -huh. uh, imagine things in the sky and then name them. And my mom kept those notes, actually, until I was older. Wow. So when you say you charted, do you mean night after night? You Yeah. Wow. So you've been... But I was very young. Obviously, it wasn't precise. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's more, than, more effort than most put into you know, something like that, keeping track of things and learning about things. So, so I think that, there, that something that I can say is in the, what I perceive to be as kind of a messier trajectory than perhaps it seems to you, I think the thing that has always been consistent is a certain appetite for learning and for having new ways of understanding things. Um, every time an art piece or a piece of um, science in any discipline or a talk or a movie or a piece of music gives me a way of perceiving differently or gives me an understanding or connects the dots in a different way, <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it. So I think this idea of connecting the dots and naming it so that you have a concept to refer to something that's um, you know, larger than one moment is something that I've been um, just naturally attracted to since I was probably five or something. But how important is knowing what you want along the entire trajectory? It sounds like um, it's it has been with you. <laughs> well, I mean, th that what keeps changing. I think the thing that doesn't change much is the practice as how do you approach um, whatever it is. And I think that the, the what is determined really by how we go about things or the kinds of practices that we find ourselves comfortable doing. Which is why, for instance, I realized the what of being an astronaut is not going to work out for me because the practice of being in a confined space for a very long time seemed like uh, it might not be in my um, sort of uh, wheelhouse. Yeah which the pandemic has shown me, I'm not bad at it, actually. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure that your apartment is nearly as uh, <laughs> closed off as like a space station or something. That's true. But you do have, so, so your curiosity and your drive to learn has taken you through many different subjects. And um, is there a way to rank the importance of the different subjects that continue, I assume, to inform everything that you do? Sure. So um, I think something that, is underlying pretty much every single scientific study or philosophical work that I have ever undertaken or have been attracted to is the idea of temporally extended agency. And not just temporally extended agency, but also uh, collective agency. So there are ways in which humans um, can, I can decide right now that I'm going to raise my hand and I can do this. And this is a very sort of proximal um, intention or a sort of a very immediate intention. But then there's the idea of, oh, I plan to go to Iran to visit my family. And that's a much more challenging sort of plan or intention because there are a lot of uncertainties, for instance, in the world, even if before COVID there were. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's a more long-term undertaking. It needs a lot of coordination and planning. And then there is a further one, which is um, in 10 years, I want to somehow have contributed, let's say, to um, you know, uh, somehow helping with uh, uh, reducing our negative impact on climate change, let's say. Or let's say the goal is I'm going to, uh, in 10 years' time, I want to have created something that assists people for mental health management. 
So these kinds of things are sort of longer term agency. Re they require a different scale of thinking about things. Mm. And I'm profoundly interested in this capacity in humans, whether it's from philosophical stance, whether it's from a collective stance, what kind of organization, what kind of graph structure between people enables these kinds of things? What kind of things shrinks agency? And if you, I think what you were asking is how does it tie back to some kind of episode or moment in my personal history? Mm. I mean, I grew up during a war and then I was in a country where, you know, a lot of things were banned. And so uh, it's, it's, it's surprisingly not unlike sort of where everywhere in the world is currently heading. Mm. So um, there was a sense where uh, you couldn't plan things in advance because things, things could change. And if all of a sudden the bombing changed in one city, you, you should be ready to pick up and go somewhere else to make sure your family is safe. And then there were bunkers and then every day there were sirens and you had to run down to some bunkers at school, at anywhere else. And if there were no bunkers, you had to run to some basement somewhere just to stay safe. So this kind of thing, um, in a, when you're very young, it doesn't sound traumatic. It doesn't feel right. like that. It right. just, you, my dad made it feel like a game, but a very serious one that we really need to do it right. And so, so it, but, but what it taught me is that we couldn't plan long-term during that time, obviously. But then we somehow did. So there was a mortgage and we discussed as a family things about that. Or when we got, when uh, my mom was writing her master thesis at the time. So there was discussions of those things. And then we grew up, again, some plans, plans about this. And um, it started to seem to me how important the structure of the environment around you is for shrinking or expanding your agency. And I think that that really got interesting to me. And uh, I noticed that a lot of work in philosophy or I saw a kind of a division between works that focus on individuals and uh, cultures that focus on individuals and cultures that enforce certain kinds of collective uh, attitudes versus a kind of a critical approach in between mm. that acknowledges the collective forces that shape the individual and expand or diminish what it can want, the scope of its agency, what kind of being it can be, what kind of questions it can ask, etc. And so that idea, I guess, very closely linked with a sense, a certain sense of freedom and uh, not just freedom in the sense of free will, which I think is a very almost like a distraction in all of this. The metaphysical question is a, a, almost like a distraction to the, to the things that matter the most, which is somehow in the control of human societies. We decide on them together. I think that those kinds of questions became sort of central to me. So it sounds like you have been thinking in graphs since a, a very lot. young age then. <laughs> you know, you might be the first person to say this, but I do like to think that because of my drawings of fake constellations I was making up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, some of my early drawings are, are basically, I would call them graphs now, but back then I thought I'm just making up new constellations. But, but now you'd call everything a graph, right? You can think of almost anything as a graph. Interesting. Um, I haven't done that in my scientific work, but I de in all of my work, I have definitely done it in my collective memory work. And when I think about how we learn a cognitive map of the environment, I mean, there are people way before me, 20 years ago, people who have called it cognitive graphs. So um, definitely not the first person to call anything a graph <laughs> by any means. 
And do I think everything is a graph? I mean, I'm not sure. It depends on the level of analysis or level of uh, whether it's helpful for that level of analysis or not. Well, a cognitive map, a la Tolman, whom I know is one of your intellectual uh, heroes, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, but a map is a graph. That's essentially. right. Essentially. That's so, right. So, I mean, this, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's right. But we'll, we'll come back to this later. Yeah, but, of course. It, um, as an aside, do you feel grateful at all that you grew up during a war, in the midst of a war? I'm, again, uh, positively surprised by that question. And to be honest, I can't say that I'm grateful, but I do have a sense that I'm content with the trajectory of my life in spite of its difficulties, because I have a sense that I got to experience a range of human possibilities and experiences that a lot of people will not be able to experience it in multiple generations even. Yeah. So so this your trajectory, I, I'm so intrigued by this because the way that you grew up in your trajectory is so different than mine because at many steps along the way, I just had no idea what I wanted, right? And And that is a huge impediment to making progress in anything <laughs> because I was just largely unfocused because I grew up in... Uh, you know, suburban, fairly wealthy family and had total freedom, like to do many things. And uh, the challenges would only have to come through self challenge or through, you know, sports or there was school, but everything in school came easy until I kind of quit trying in school, you know. Uh, and, and so I wonder if, if one needs some sort of challenging environment to propel one forward. It, you know, and some people are born with that internal intrinsic motivation, which you may also have had. You might have had the right uh, combination. I'm not trying to deconstruct your, uh, your being here, <laughs> although we can. You know, that'd be fun. But <laughs> I think that... So if you look at regions that are war-torn, what you observe is not that all of a sudden everybody is progressing and unfolding their best potential. So I think that something that happens is a huge number of people lose their capacity to realize any potential at all. And not just because of losing physically something, but because of the psychological impact that the shrinking of agency has on them. Now, there are people who form some kind of resilience through trial and error, through support system or whatnot. What I do get interested in is if you read post-war literature and philosophy in most cultures, it tends to be turning points. And or around the time or just pre around the time of catastrophes, there is a sense in which people's people start to talk about narratives, people start to think rethink things. You 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 find a lot of very good philosophy in post-World War II in Europe. Do you mean personal philosophy or cultural No, cultural points? cultural products, yeah. Okay. You are, th there are those kinds of turning points that happen after periods of war sometimes. And I think that that's interesting. So I'm, I'm only focusing on this because of your specific question. Do wars make people realize I mean for potentials? You, not in, oh, uh, I see. But, I see. But, <laughs> uh, and, and really, I'm just talking about the broader context of growing up with, with and without these challenging constraints and structures that force you into different scenarios and make you experience different things rather than being up to just Saturday morning cartoons or, you know, something like that, where there's really no grounding with the external world and how to proceed. And I'm not sure how to compare those two forms of life, because 
it seems to me that there are so many other factors that I have, I'm not an expert in analyzing those. What I can say is I do certainly think that I could have probably done a lot more if I wasn't facing as much obstacles. <laughs> oh, come on. You've done quite a bit already. That's not my perception, <laughs> but okay, well, that's but part thank of who you, you are as well, that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask more about philosophy, but uh, yeah, before before I do that, have there been moments throughout your career? Because the other thing it looks like is that every step has been a success, and you've been here's my question. I'm going to go in this field and answer it, and this leads to a new question, and then oh, I not, now I need to learn a new field, and I'm then I'll get a good position there. Have you ever felt disillusioned in in your career and and if so like how you know how did you move forward? Yes, multiple times. I think that uh the first time that I felt profoundly disillusioned was when I migrated to Europe around the age of 23. Um we were a group of people in Tehran, we were, you know, learning multiple languages, reading as much philosophy as we could, reading fiction from everywhere in the world, history of cinema, watching sort of um taped versions of good plays everywhere in the world, going to the theater all the time. Tehran had amazing theater. And my sense was that if I go to Europe, because they just haven't had all the restrictions that we've had, things are going to be even a lot more, you know, everybody has... Exactly. And then I arrived there and I realized, oh, actually, they don't care as much about the meaning of life or... Mm you know, what is a better way to govern or what are the different political systems that have existed for the last 2000 years and which ones survived and why. So I I had a culture shock um, when I arrived to Europe. Why don't these people care? Yeah. And then I realized the fact that everything that we were doing was kind of somehow in some sense illegal almost made every moment and every every activity driven towards knowledge more significant. What do you, wait, what do you mean illegal? What, so, so, for instance, certain movies, you weren't supposed to have them. Oh. Music was illegal, certain kinds of music. And to certain have... books, yeah. Certain mm. books at, during different times were illegal. As I was growing up, things changed, of course, because there was a revolution in 1979 before I was born. And then there were a lot of restrictions afterwards, and they sort of slowly changed over time. Mm-hmm. And there was a time that even chess got illegal, banned, which was a very surprising thing. So there were like various moments where it seemed like every activity that we were doing had a certain significance to it. Mm. It wasn't as much how perfect you were doing something as it was the fact that you were doing something, you were maintaining that. Mm. And, you know, in the history of our culture, there were many times that Iran had been sort of attacked by another culture who tried to, for instance, change the language or something. And people kept the language alive via poetry, for instance, when it wasn't allowed to be the written dominant language. So there was a, there is a kind of culture of resistance that was I guess I grew up with. There were poetry that I grew up with. There was this thing that it's a value to learn from anything in the world uh, as much as you can, learn as many languages as you can and so these things were real values because the opportunity might be taken away from you otherwise. Is that part of it? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um but maybe, yeah. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure whether it's that the opportunity might be taken away, but it felt precious. Life felt precious, like learning felt precious. Uh, reading fiction, read, watching certain movies, listening to certain music, creating certain things, it felt precious. Does it still feel that way? For me, it does, because, I, because um, 
there is a lot more resistance to buy. I mean, currently, I think the world is a little more comfortable with the term systemic injustice or systemic bias. And I think that there, that you feel it. It's almost like, a, like a, it's as felt as gravity if you are a person who's migrating alone, a woman of color, mm-hmm. migrating alone from country to country, trying to acquire knowledge. You feel that resistance to your presence almost the same way you feel gravity when you're looking down a cliff. It's very real. It's, it's, it's so tangible. And uh, I've been fortunate to have fantastic allies um, from privileged backgrounds um, here and then who have helped me out. And one of them was telling me one of the situations where they first tried to change something about somebody being on a panel. And they told me how much they felt that. And mm. we had a long discussion about that feeling when you feel that resistance towards um, some activity that you want to do that you think is just and it's going to improve things and that you've sensed that resistance. So I think that that sense of the importance, the kind of almost urgency of engaging in big picture thinking, engaging in philosophical thought, it kept getting um, reinforced by the fact that it's kind of... It's, I, I don't, I, it, it almost, it almost is as if you're, you're tagged as a dangerous being and it's unclear why, because you haven't done anything that's dangerous at all. <laughs> Maybe and, that's it. It's the unknown that you haven't done any, you haven't, <laughs> you haven't done anything that someone has observed, right? So it's, you're different, right? There's a difference is uh, fear of breeding. What is, now we're really going off the deep end. But yeah, we might need to take out some of this. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I don't mind. But so, are we in the United States on the right track? Have we course corrected at all? Is this a time of uh, are we improving, or is this <laughs> this is a huge question? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, what I can say is that I am a huge fan of political philosophy, poetry, and science fiction produced by. African-American authors on this topic. Mm -hmm. I'm a very huge fan of the American Civil Rights Movement. I'm a very huge fan of the BLM movement in general. And I think that something that is extremely unique about the United States is the practices and cultures of resistance that um, particularly the African-American community here has developed. And it almost is unique in the world. And I think it can teach the world a lot. So in that sense, I, um, I feel very indebted to the authors that I have read over the years and I keep reading. I feel indebted to the conversations that I've had with people who have taught me how to view the culture of resistance from different angles. So again, coming from a culture of resistance and being very deeply motivated by it, I recognize it in others and I profoundly have respect and extreme reverence for it. And I think that um, it's particularly uh, been going very strong and profoundly creative in the United States. Mm. Um, In spite of the increasing and kind of scary sort of, um, I'm not even sure where it's going to go, but let's say counter wave that that they're facing. So, okay, at risk for, uh, you know, at the risk of going really, really off the <laughs> rails. to political topics. I know we'll, uh, we can continue this after we stop recording, which would be fun. But, um, okay, so let's talk a little bit of philosophy. And um, yeah. 
and its role in in your uh, life and career before we move on to talking about reinforcement learning and your particular role in that. And maybe we'll come back to the, this collective memory and collective learning that you're also interested in because mm-hmm. um, it's uh, you know all, all related. So I sort of zeroed in on your, uh, I think it was a master's in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. what degree you got, but philosophy of science, philosophy of mind. Has that um, continued to shape your current thoughts? Do you Do you refer back onto it or is it just a key part of a history that has shaped you or is it a a continued ingredient? Yeah, that's a great question. Very often do I refer back to it, not just in my own thinking, but also in discussions with others. Very often do I reread things that I've read in the past. And it's interesting how it changes the way that you think about it. I guess for me, philosophy is first and foremost an activity it's it's a part of your way of life. It's a, it's an activity. It's not something that is a static thing that you read and then you apply. It's something that you do. Another point of disillusionment for me was uh, when I realized uh, that philosophy is one of the worst fields in terms of gender ratio. I think it's even worse than math. Is that right? And um, I realized that uh, a lot of writing philosophy would mean that you would need to publish in journals that people like you are not going to be the ones who are reviewing or reading or assessing it. And so at some point, I realized that maybe as a career, as a vocation, this might be not the way for me to practice philosophy, so to speak. So I have a sense that a lot of the kinds of science that I practice is a form of you know, doing philosophy in some ways. And there was a time where science, natural science was called natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it was in fact in the 19th century that the term science started to emerge and separate from the notion of uh, natural philosophy. Looking back at my own culture, there have been, you know, so many uh, Iranian scientists. There is Avicenna, there's Hayam, there's people who built calendars or advanced medicine or created different kinds of math. And they were always doing multiple things. They always were doing philosophy, science, poetry, a bunch of these things. So I almost feel like there's nothing original in that way of looking at it. It's basically like my cultural heritage to some extent. And in that way, philosophy does shape, to be honest with you, um, almost my everyday conversations as as much as my scientific work in Twitter discussions, it comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And recently we started this uh, sort of salon called the Learning Salon and we're hosting it um, together with John Krakauer, who has been on your show before. Friend of the show, yep. And Joshua Vogelstein. And it's interesting because some of the people's feedback for our discussions on Twitter was that, oh, neuroscientists have discovered philosophy. And we're like, no, we were, we were using it's it. It's always been there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think it's very ingrained in how I think about things and in how it helps to step back and look from a different angle and not get too lost in details. And also to dissociate things in certain ways, to, to, to test a particular hypothesis and to be able to recognize, I guess, the slower movement of ideas as opposed to get too excited about everyday advances. <laughs> so how many things have we really advanced over the past 20 years, over the past 30 years, over the past 60 years? I think it's easier to look at that if you keep zoom, zooming out, so to speak. And I think that that is a very valuable thing for science because at some point we need to realize we've been holding the same court for too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we hit the wall. 
but do you do you use philosophy it sounds like you use philosophy more as a way to think about how to move forward in sort of a prescriptive uh, manner. Well, it's, it kind of sounds like you use them both, but because you know, there, there, you know, one way you can use it is uh, to develop rules uh, and in a prescriptive way of of how to you know achieve some scientific results or something, right? And another way is you can use that background. Uh, to evaluate and to to judge the validity of of some results that someone else you know has uh, published or, or or whatever, do you use them both equally that way, or or is there a certain? I think that that's a great question, and I think that I use it to evaluate some existing fields and then develop some new idea by by developing it in a kind of a philosophical sphere and then testing it in with with uh-huh. uh, models or empirical work, for instance. Uh, when I went to do my PhD in Berlin, uh, after my master's in philosophy, I was working on this distal agency and uh, distal intentions, long-term intentions. Mm-hmm. And then I went and started using fMRI to study how does the brain represent future intentions when we are paying attention to something else. And that's my first encounter with uh, Brahman Area 10, which um, ended up happen- reoccurring again and again, pretty much in... Um, every study that I've done ever since that I've used fMRI, I have somehow, um, again, uncovered Brahman Area 10. It's, a, it's the largest cytoarchitectonic area of the prefrontal cortex. And it's the region in which we have the largest difference between humans and other mm. uh, mammals, including our evolutionary cousins. So it was a... Um, interesting interconnectivity between them. And then when it came to the collective memory ideas... Um, this idea, the philosophical idea of not individualism, but the, acknowledging the sort of embeddedness of humans in a larger structure and acknowledging that some of my memories are not my memories. The majority of the things that I remember right now um, are actually not exactly my own memories. And um, I have read about them or learned about them or heard about them, implicitly acquired them through culture, but they're not really mine. And a lot of my memories of individual experiences that I've had are not my own memories only because they, I have rewritten them and updated them on the basis of conversations with others. This interpersonal aspect and um, relational aspect is uh, prominent in philosophical traditions. And um, some of them go back to Hegel and some of them are more contemporary in uh, feminist and race philosophy. So there is a lot of interesting places where um, these different sort of philosophical ways of thinking leads to what kind of experiments do we want to do now? So for instance, that relational idea of memory leads to, okay, what kind of graphs leads to memories converging or diverging? Or in the same graph, what order of conversations would make them diverge or converge? Which Mm -hmm. sounds like a much more empirical thing to do but really, I think it's very much ingrained in these kinds of philosophical ways. You mentioned going back and rereading multiple times different, you know, passages, different different works. What I would love to figure out is just the exact right sequence of when to go back, how often to go back to a work, and you know, because I think that there's this huge value in just cycling, right? And it's not just a circle; it's a messy scribble that moves forward in time. And how to know when to revisit a certain work, because every time you re- revisit it, you do revisit it with new knowledge, and yeah. and then 
you know, like I read a lot of high school uh, philosophy in high school and it was basically a complete waste of time because <laughs> then I, you know, and so I started off my academic career or whatever with this really broad and very shallow knowledge base. And, and then I sort of dove in and, you, you know, in the PhD, you do the specialized work. And then I became very specialized, but very narrow, right? And, uh, and, and through my postdoc and, and now what I'm doing through the podcast and just my own, you know, readings is now I'm expanding back and getting really broad again, but with much more depth in, in certain areas, which color everything else I read. So revisiting philosophy, revisiting even old neuroscience works, everything is colored by the new knowledge. And I, but I, and so I, <laughs> there must be some perfect optimal trajectory through that graph <laughs> Maybe maybe that could be a, a side project for you to figure out what the what the right trajectory is. But do you have a sense of like what, just when to visit and what? I never thought about it like that. Mm. You know, in um, in the memory works that I've done on prospective memory with uh, Ken Norman and John Cohen, something that is very interesting to me is a kind of a bottom up spontaneous retrieval that happens in episodic memory, for instance which is very different from the top-down way mm -hmm. of uh, determining when to retrieve what, for instance, or maintaining something in your mind all the time. And I have a sense that uh, there is a way in which these things just resurface every now and then in case they are really on the trajectory that you're on. There are things that don't resurface again, and you realize that, okay, maybe... you know it, it, that, that would be a little forced to force yourself to read some things. But for me, it's a sense of um, some things happen, some context, some, some train of thought happens, and then you find yourself all of a sudden back where you were before, and you all of a sudden realize that you, you, you see it in a very different light now. Mm -hmm. I think that the uh, one example of this, I guess a tangible example of this was in the movie Big Fish, where this guy arrives at the same village twice. The first time he sees it as this amazing place and right. the second time it's this kind of a broken down place and it's, it's it seems like the second time might be reality and the first time might have been the kind of projected idealism or something, but at the same time both of them felt as real. I think that I've had that experience with some work that I, the first time you see it, it's this magical land that opens up all doors and then the second time you read it 10 years later, you're like, oh. It's actually, you know, that window is broken over there and this door doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But my favorite is the opposite. When the first time That's you right. read it, it maybe you mm -hmm, either don't get mm -hmm, it or it doesn't mm -hmm. seem interesting. And then you come back and then all of a sudden it's, well, it's repainted and the windows are fixed and all of that jazz. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And that definitely happens, especially with work that you underestimate the first time that you read it because someone that you respected or valued had devalued this work. And later on, you encounter the work again on your own and you all of a sudden discover some value to it that you might have overlooked because perhaps it was not as much valued in the particular <laughs> contingent circle you were in at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, as we're talking, I realize... I think reinforcement learning was one of those that was originally like, eh, to me, you know, <laughs> and uh, the whole neuroeconomics and subjective value and action value, state value, action value pair policy. And, you know, at, at the time when I was reading or really early on, one, it was above my head. Two, I thought, oh, this is all so mechanical. And, you know, what I'm really interested in is our awareness and subjective experience. So I, you kind of pass it on, but everything comes back full circle. So, so 
let's move on then and, and get into reinforcement learning because you have a, a long history now of studying reinforcement learning in academia, but recently you've moved to Microsoft. Are, are you in a situation at Microsoft? First of all, congratulations on the Thank job. You. I don't, yeah. Are, are you, is it a Bell Labs kind of situation there or, or are you, do you feel full-fledged in industry there? Because it seems like these Bell Lab type situations are just cropping up everywhere now. Yeah, I do think it's a very, from what I understand about Bell Labs. Right. <laughs> Your memory of someone else's memory of Bell Labs. Exactly. My memory yeah. of somebody else's memory of Bell Labs. Um, from what I understand, yes, it's very similar to that. And I think it's not an exaggeration if I say that. I, I have a sense of and it, it, that the, the promise of 100% freedom of research is, is, is true. At Microsoft in the industry setting? So it's Microsoft Research, which is okay. a part of Microsoft that's exclusively focusing on research, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And any interest in working with the product teams would depend on your research interests, I which see. is a fantastic position to be in, to be honest with you. You know, Microsoft owns Xbox and Minecraft. And for a lot of people, especially during the pandemic, that's the real world right now. So if you want to observe human behavior, <laughs> if you're somebody who wants to study human behavior, there are opportunities there. I'm trying to get Katja Hoffman to come on the show, uh, who does a lot of the yeah. Minecraft work. Yeah, she's she's she. Her team is doing incredible work, and um, they have actually a lot of ongoing recent work that I think you would be very interested in as well. Okay, so you're not writing grants. You don't have that burden. You don't. Uh, do you still have the publish burden? Do you? I mean, it's 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 not a burden. It's a it's a desire. Uh, I mm -hmm. I don't want to not publish. I want to publish as much as I can, mm -hmm. and um, in probably the same journals too. In the same, I will be in the same academic circles, but also a little bit more involved uh, in uh, sort of uh, CS circles than I have been in the past. Although I used to go to those conferences. Well, is that just because you're not g going to be? running experiments yourself now? I mean, or is experimentation part of the, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I will be running experiments. I will continue collaborating with a lot of academic institutions, uh, be it uh, with grad students, postdocs, mm -hmm. professors, uh, for an, in different directions of my research, in fact. So there wasn't a lot of convincing that had to be done for you to, to join? Soul searching? Well, I... Well, there was a lot of soul searching and part of it was I had sort of this idea of starting my own lab for a very long time. But uh, at the same time, the, the, my, I, I do take a lot of joy and energy in mentoring and working with um, grad students over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And there are situations at Microsoft where you can do that. There, there is opportunities to um, not only have what, what we call interns, which happens a lot in the CS field, which is that somebody who's doing a grad, who's in grad school basically uh, joins for three months and works with someone on a project and they might return for another one or for a postdoc or something. And then there is just co-advising students. Um, uh, there's a, a lot of different ways that um, I was, uh, uh, people sort of clarified for me that this is how they are sort of pursuing research. So there was always a priority of research and a priority of um, some advancing some vision, getting to a point where you can finally have the sense that you can advance something. Hmm. 
And I think that was what was, while mentoring others, so having, you know, your academic babies, so to speak. So that was the kind of thing that had always been on my mind. And so um, as I move forward, I will always, that's my North Star. I will always go towards a direction that I can have um, the situations where I can mentor people, work with other people, and hopefully uh, grow together and uh, at the same time have the ability to advance my research in directions that I haven't before. And I have a sense that currently Microsoft Research is indeed a place that I get to do both. You feel more freedom to explore right now than you have or than you projected you would as, fa as a faculty member? I can't say because I haven't seen the other option, but yeah, right. as of right now, I I have the sense that the the projects that I'm getting involved with right now are very much in the trajectory of um, expanding uh, in a way that I have always wanted, and I, I I have a sense that it might be in directions that might not have been entirely available to me in academia. And that's very exciting to be uh, honest with you, but it's very early. So I can't, so, you yeah. know, you, you can't, um, you can't count your papers before they have hatched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I feel, uh, I just had this internal sense. I feel excited for you. So thank um, you. Yeah, thank you. It's just great. Uh, so we're going to talk reinforcement learning here. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, before I, I ask you about it, it feels like reinforcement learning is a super crowded field. Is that true? Does it feel crowded to you? Or is it just because it's exploded? Is there just are the pieces flying so many pieces flying everywhere that there's just room for unlimited growth? Could you explain to me what that means? So um, everyone studies reinforcement learning. It just seems like half of the academic world, and I have my own bias because I talk to people <laughs> about these topics, you know, does it feel very competitive or are there literally so many new developments, new results that leading to new experiments and new computational principles occurring that it feels like there's enough room for mm. everyone to be studying their own little niche? So I'm trying to categorize where are these explosions that you're um, perceiving. Well, so we're going to talk about successor representation, right? Which That's is right. between model-free and model-based, essentially right. reinforcement right. learning. So there are new algorithms being developed all the time. There are new um, ways of updating policy, of you know, revaluating things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious why it's not why my question isn't clear. <laughs> because I don't feel that, be, Okay, great question. So because I meet a lot of people, especially in cognitive science or in NLP or other fields that don't know much about either reinforcement learning or that there are experiments on reinforcement learning in humans that are beyond or in animals that are beyond just, you know, model free mm -hmm. value. Uh, and it has been quite clear to me that a lot of the directions of reinforcement learning that we see right now, a lot of it has been, you know, um, a rewrite of things that have been around since the 90s. That, that's also what deep reinforcement learning is, essentially, well, what it began as. But that's what I'm saying, you know, deep reinforcement learning has is the darling of the AI world right now. Correct? So I, I think that that is um, that might be true in in some sort of aspects. For instance, um, there are a lot of deep RL approaches that um, seem to get better scores on specific task sets or specific measures. 
But if you look at the bigger picture, um, the field of, for instance, theoretical reinforcement learning that a lot of my colleagues at uh, Microsoft Research are involved with, that's, I feel like, I, I feel like it's an underappreciated field so far. Mm. And I think that as we explore all of the things that GPUs can allow us to explore, we are going to all go back to the whiteboard at some point in um, kind of theoretical ways at some point. And I have a sense that there is a lot of value to that. And if anything, that seems underrepresented to me as opposed to overcrowded. It's not something that I have done so far, but it's something that I'm very excited to collaborate with people on. Another thing is um, the the kinds of things that I'm doing. I, I know. Pr I think I I, ha I I I know pretty much. Uh, it's it's not too hard to keep track of the papers that are coming out that are directly related to yours. Because although there is a lot of them and they're very interesting, um, it's not as overcrowded as you would think. Okay. So my sense is actually that, especially if you're doing reinforcement learning in humans, and you're doing reinforcement learning in humans as pertaining to representation learning and how it influences human planning or decision-making or memory, it's, it's not a very huge field, in fact. And to be honest, people have been... Um, most people at least that I'm mostly in touch with are, are pretty good with citing each other and mm. collaborating. And um, so I, I have a sense that it's a, it's a healthy field. That's, that's my experience. And I have a sense that there's a lot of untapped potential and potential for growth there. Well, see, that's all I was asking is whether there's still <laughs> untapped. Do, do you think that, you know, so you mentioned, you know, the deep reinforcement learning stuff um, is occurring and it exploded, but, eventually we're going to have to go to the whiteboards and consider the theoretical uh, reinforcement learning moving forward. Uh, is that going to happen sooner rather than later? Are we up against the limits or are we? is it going to be 10 years from now? I think especially the last couple of years, people have gotten a lot more excited about aspects of cognition that are higher level and that requires compositionality, for instance. That requires um, an ability to factor certain aspects of the stimuli that are related or most useful for certain tasks. There's meta-learning of what are these features that are more related. Um, there's a need to understand how we could have agents that might, for instance, learn um, objects without a kind of a symbolic approach or without a lot of inherited um, inbuilt designer algorithms, but with just based on rooted in learning principles. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea of approaching reasoning and compositionality and objects and schema from a perspective of learning as opposed to the kind of, um, I guess I could say, um, last century... MIT approach, which was uh, kind of symbolic, inbuilt um, sort of approach, very, very language oriented, very top down, very designed. And it actually sort of historically and culturally, it stopped the growth of connectionist approaches successfully for something like two decades, at least. Yeah. And I think that um, what we are seeing right now is that more and more learning approaches are trying to approach those problems from a perspective of learning principles out of which these can arise and minimal architectures out of which these um, learning 
um, uh, minimal architectures for and learning principles out of which these can emerge without having hard-coded them. How do you reconcile that with the recent pushback on tabula rasa, connectionism, uh, deep learning from people who don't necessarily want, people like Gary Marcus, you know, uh, who doesn't n don't necessarily want to bring back symbolic AI a la MIT <laughs> a century ago, but who want more priors, more structures built in and a, a where the architecture plays a larger role moving forward. And they don't want to get rid of learning, but maybe reduce the all-encompassing reliance on learning. So I think that when I talk about learning principles and minimal architectures, um, there are things that we can think about in terms of um, not tabula rasa uh, machines. However, I think there is a difference in what is the extent to which we think certain architectures are innate. And that is the, the kind of, a, uh, I guess, um, 30, 40 year old uh, disagreement in the field before I was a person or I was alive. <laughs> uh, but Paul Smolensky gave a fantastic talk actually at Microsoft Research and talking about the kind of East Pole, what he calls East Pole, which is again, the MIT sort of uh, Pinker, Chomsky, East uh, Fodor. East Pole as in, not, he doesn't say East Coast, he calls it East Pole because there's a pole. You know, number. Of, yeah. And then West Coast, which is the sort of connectionism of, I guess, the 80s, 90s. Does he call it West Pole? I think he calls that one West Coast. Okay. I don't, yeah. <laughs> and then the difference between these two and uh, uh, kind of in a cartoonish way, he characterizes the two of them. Mm -hmm. His own approach, of course, with the whole tensors and everything is to kind of bridge between them. And, uh, but again, he has a particular angle to it. Um, so there's a number of people who have tried to bridge them. Gary Marcus is one of them. Uh, Paul Smolensky is another, and there are other people. John Cohen has made some attempts at this. But at the same time, I guess everybody has their own idea of what is the approach that will work and what are the limits of every approach. My understanding is that minimal architecture and minimal principles of learning giving rise to all of these is the way to go. And I think that that would be something that's special because, and here is, I think, perhaps where I would differ, uh, and for instance, with someone like Gary Marcus, who we are going to have on the learning salon. So I will fortunately get the chance to talk to him in November about this, is this idea of, I guess, algorithms versus hardware you can have hardware that can enable a couple of algorithms. And I think in many animals, it's like that. You can barely teach them too many variations of other algorithms. And even if you do, they don't teach it to their um, offspring. So um, you ha we haven't still managed to teach language to any other creature. And in the sense that it has both systematicity and compositionality, we haven't observed it in other creatures. Although like there are particular uh, types of crows that have particular sort of more sophisticated versions. Uh, there are calls that animals make, they can learn new calls, but it's not at that level quite. And they also don't teach it um, to their offspring when, for instance, when they learn language, when they learn, they learn something language-like or pseudo-language-like from humans. But humans seem to have a, a kind of an architecture that enables varieties of algorithms on it. It seems like the the interconnectedness of our algorithm and our hardware is f much less 
um, strict and much more loose than it is for um, other mammals, and which, which is part of the reason I'm fascinated by prefrontal cortex and its connection to posterior medial cortex, to medial temporal lobe, because there is a sense in which there are particular parts, newer, evolutionarily newer parts of the human brain that enables the hardware to transcend the limits of the algorithms you are born with. And it's completely correlated with how long it takes for you to develop. How long does your learning process take? And you mean it tra transcends it in terms of your, you start off with the hardware and a set of algorithms, and then through development, your hardware is able to combinatorially, or, well, maybe not combinatorially, but uh, transcend the number of algorithms it's then producing through development. So it's a, it's a matter of producing more algorithms. It could produce a lot more than what you would develop if I just left you to your own devices with like a family, sure, but minimal levels of training. Uh -huh. There are so many directions of um, algorithm development that can happen in humans. And in that sense, we need a kind of a flexible architecture that can generate new algorithms for new problems. And it doesn't need a new set of inbuilt biases every time it faces a new problem. Mm -hmm or every time we need to, we needed to solve a new task. The number of tasks that humans can solve and the types of varieties that they use the transfer for, they're also not all in line with, I guess, like some kind of a, a evolutionary survival reproductive objective either. It seems like there's a lot more room uh, for just generating a lot of different types of algorithms, generating completely made up structures and then inhabiting those. Um, we just are very good at making new tasks for ourselves, making new objectives, and creating in very intricate structures that sustain for 2,000 years <laughs> or more, and maintaining that as a part of our objective function, which you wouldn't get if this cult if one, of one or two cultures get lost, you will just not have those algorithms anymore. You'll develop something else. Mm. I think that that is a fascinating aspect of human cognition, and I think that it gets lost in... Anything that is in between the innate versus tabula rasa, anything that's b making everything inbuilt in order to solve different tasks, mm -hmm. completely misses the opportunity of even thinking about this more important aspect, in my opinion, of human hardware, software relation. Yeah. And it, I think that the biggest sort of Maybe, and I don't know. But for me, I think that something that would be a huge advance is, first of all, you know, theoretically understanding this capacity for generating new algorithms to fit new problems. Sorry, that's that very loud. And second, uh, just theoretically understanding how simple organisms start to develop start to evolve architectures that enable more algorithms. It doesn't mean that we need to... So some people's reaction to these kinds of um, arguments is, oh, well, we don't have millions of years to have a single cell and allow it to, in, to, to evolve into a human. And the answer to that is, yes, it's not that we're simulating the entire evolution. The idea is, can we figure out very theoretical basic principles of evolving a more complex hardware or changing your hardware, changing your architecture such that it might enable uh, more complex algorithms to increase your fitness? You don't need to do the whole, you don't need to sort of work on the entire evolutionary trajectory up to humans. Mm -hmm. It's sufficient if we can show it at least at some level. And I think that if we 
the, the day that we create machines that can change their own architecture and change their own algorithms according to situations, I think that's the, that, that would be a bigger breakthrough than the next one, the next collage of tricks that is going to solve something with 98 as opposed to 97%, you know? Man, so, so much of what you just said, we're going to just keep coming back to throughout the episode here, throughout our conversation here. And what you just ended on uh, is kind of perfect because it's related to open-endedness. And I'll be talking with Ken Stanley, uh, Kenneth Stanley next week. And so hopefully I'll, I'll bring this back in to the conversation with him as well, because he would delight in what you just said, uh, I think. <laughs> One of the things that you talked about is, you know, the, the, the modern, you know, landscape of reinforcement learning starting to incorporate uh, higher level higher level cognitive operations and compositionality and so on. And that's happening in neuroscience uh, as as well. Um, I'm not sure if you're referring to AI or neuroscience, but at least in the neuroscience world, you see you know, working memory being incorporated in reinforcement learning, episodic memory, executive functions. And it seems like we're, we're starting to go beyond studying cognitive processes um, in isolation and really starting to kind of put the system together. I kind of winced when I said that because I don't totally uh, believe it. But learning how all the these different parts interact in a more holistic manner. And it makes me wonder, do you feel like this sort of progress is um, pushing towards some sort of fundamental change, some some fundamental advance in our understanding of intelligence? Sorry, what kind of? Or if it's more incremental. Well, so traditionally, uh, we've studied the brain in a modular fashion, right? Uh, and now, you know, thinking about reinforcement learning, and I don't know if we'll talk about this later, but you have the model-free system, quote-unquote system, where there's, you know, dopamine, and it projects to uh, habitual-related uh, brain regions. <laughs> Ida's rolling her eyes when I said habitual, <laughs> which is great. And, but, but, you know, there's traditional dichotomy, and then there's goal-directed, uh, behavior, which is related to a different system and projections in the brain. And and one of the things that you're doing, um, successor representations, is talking about how these systems both interact and how there's different sorts of algorithms like you were just, you know, talking about. But then, but then it seems like it's silly to talk about just reinforcement learning systems on their own because working memory interacts with it. And so does episodic memory and executive function. And, and it seems like we're getting a more holistic picture, I think I'm just repeating myself now, so I apologize, um, about what it means to interact and be intelligent. And I'm, I'm wondering if you feel like, is that changing our conception of intelligence? Are, are we really on the verge of moving, really taking a big step forward? So I'm going to acknowledge a couple of um, sort of advances that were already around, um, at least in neural networks, the idea of working memory, episodic memory, and within the neural networks field has been around since the 90s in the works of someone, for instance, like John Cohen or Randy O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. The idea of, because of the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, and then lateral temporal lobe sort of um, natural uh, ways, and also earlier uh, theoretical work that we have um, from Endel Tolving or Moscovich and others, there, there is a natural way in which different kinds of memory have always been a part of the idea of learning. Yeah. And I think that you're totally right that reinforcement learning was a little uh, sort of um, later to incorporating uh, either the idea of external memory uh, which would be sort of a long-term storage or the idea of working memory. 
And I think that um, there has been some beautiful work by Ann Collins and others, especially with regards to dissociating the contributions of reinforcement learning versus working memory to things. Mm -hmm. The inclusion of various sorts of um, cognitive functions is definitely, for me, also, I think that that's reflected in the question that you're asking, is, is, is quite important in the models that we develop. And I think that I would like to acknowledge that this is in contrast to the idea of some folks who think that we need to first understand entirely a fly before we can talk about human cognition. And I think that this kind of a bottom-up approach versus the kind of uh, let's focus on the capacities that happen in, in humans, for instance, um, I think these are two other kind of distinctions and uh, they are particularly pertinent and important in neuroscience, but they're also important in the ways that we start to uh, approach uh, these different capacities in modeling. And so I think that it's a, it would be a very interesting time if we are both sort of trying to look at minimal uh, architectural requirements to have these capacities mm -hmm. and uh, have the functions that these capacities have at the end of the day, but also have some sense of perhaps uh, what happens when uh, we start to need to develop memory. What are the evolutionary pressures that would require a creature to remember things? Mm -hmm. I think that they are both very interesting questions, but I don't think that we need to understand one first to understand the other. So they can happen in parallel. And I think that uh, reinforcement learning has been contributing here and then, but can has a lot more to contribute also in the future. Hmm. Uh, AI work that um, and uh, I would like to sort of highlight well, there is sort of some work that Greg Wayne and others have done at DeepMind that I think are very interesting. And um, they tried to incorporate a sort of external memory. And we had some discussions about this. We were both talking at a workshop at Cosine, which was the last conference in person. Oh, that I <laughs> wow, yeah. Just, just when the pandemic hit. Cosine 2020, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, and uh, so we had conversations about this. So there are particular ways in which um, the kinds of external memory that our models are currently incorporating are not very efficient. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Langford, for instance, uh, my, my colleague at Microsoft Research, has, some, has done some work, not just on contextual bandits, but also on contextual memory trees and various kinds of approaches that will have a more efficient memory. And what do I mean by that is when you're inserting new memories or finding them, um, how do you scale with regard to the, how does your search or your insertion scale compared to the number of memories per se? Mm -hmm. Is it N squared? Is it log? Uh, uh, is it uh, order N? And this makes a huge difference how useful your memory is. And it makes a huge difference, and puts a kind of a pressure of um, what things you need to prune or you need to delete and what needs you need to abstract together, for instance. So these kinds of uh, considerations on memory, I think it goes way beyond the idea of, oh, let's have memory. <laughs> I think that that's where we are. I think we are way, uh, uh, I think that we are in a good spot now uh, to use our models of memory. Uh, and I'm a very big fan of computational models of memory. I've, I've, I've been sort of uh, going to specific conferences for this one is context and episodic memory that uh, 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 Ken Norman and Mike Kahana have been organizing for, I think, 10 years now or more, 15 oh. years. I'm not sure, a long time. 
I've been going to it for seven years myself. So, <laughs> and uh, just every year seeing uh, senior and more junior uh, scientists uh, share their computational models of memory and discuss it. And some people focus on working memory. Some people focus on recognition memory. Some people focus on episodic memory. Some people focus on conjunctive representations and how they lead to, let's say, schema or associative statistical learning. And others say, oh no, it's a recurrent neural net that just unfolds things and makes inferences every time you need to know. So the differences between all of these camps might seem subtle from the outside, but it's a beautiful space to think about memory, and um, develop new models of memory in ways that would uh, encompass all of the different parts of the state space. Offline and online memory processes, if you thought so, in one of my talks that was a commentary on someone else's talk, I used a kind of uh, a sort of a, a 3D space and so there were different axes and I could then place their work and my work and the ancestor <laughs> of their work yeah. and so how things are moving in models of memory space. I think that uh, there are a lot of exciting, uh, many different exciting new directions for not just memory computational models of memory development, but also experiments that would test them and dissociate them that would cover and span across different spaces of memory. I do think we are at an exciting point for that. And I think the next 10 years are going to be hopefully more creative uh, than the last. One of the things that you mentioned when talking about the uniqueness of humans and the um, explosion of potential algorithms is that it doesn't necessarily need to be related to our evolutionary fitness or uh, goal, our evolutionary goal. And I was going to ask you if ultimately we're going to have equations that relate the value function, you know, the trying to maximize, quote unquote, our value, our reward um, over time, if we're going to be able to relate that in equations to, you know, something like the ultimate end of value, which is self-replication, some sort of evolutionary objective function, fitness function, right? But what you said suggests otherwise, that maybe we're beyond that. But I would counter and say some sort of political structural, cultural structure that lasted 2,000 years is probably great for self-replication. So I just want to get your thoughts on that, on, on you know, how, whether we're going to tie reinforcement learning to evolution <laughs> mathematically yeah that's a great question it's actually something that i'm working with currently of with course. two of my <laughs> wonderful colleagues at uh, at microsoft research but it's in early stages so i don't want to say too much about that mm. what i do want to say to the comment that you were making earlier is that so yeah, hopefully once we have those works, uh, uh, we can talk again. <laughs> but, but, uh, but just going back to the comment that you uh, mentioned, I think this is why meaning and philosophy matters so much. I think we can change the, that ultimate value function you're talking about or determine it on the basis of a particular meaning or philosophy that we have about our lives. And I think that is profoundly human. And it is, of course, every, every fascist system has been very interested in discarding this as error, as uh, noise. I'm not sure if I can ever agree with that. At the same time, is the goal 
the sustainability of the species or is it every single person's genes? Because if it is the latter, we are doing terribly at it. We are really doing terribly at it. We're destroying our habitats as well as our chances on it by overpopulating Earth. So I'm not sure if I agree with you that even from what we are seeing, we are going in that direction so far. I think there is, yeah. But well, do you think that we have uh, a good grasp on what the evolutionary goal is? Because that is a computational level question, which are hypotheses that we think we understand, <laughs> but yeah. how, would, how would we know? I think a lot of us think about this a lot, including my uh, astrophysicist friends who think a lot about yeah. Big Bang yeah. and the entropy increasing and all that. And I am comfortable saying that I don't have a good answer to that. And I'm not convinced that the ideas of evolutionary fitness that we currently have are entirely accurate when it comes to um, humans, that doesn't mean, oh, I don't want this to turn into somebody thinking I'm, th I'm questioning evolution. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's not that. Uh, I'm just thinking that there, um, it might be limited the way that we are currently thinking about what is the notion of fitness for humans. This is what I was going to, toward. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. So I'm very comfortable saying that I am not confident about the answers we have so far, and I'm not confident whether uh, we are on the right track to even give the answers to that. And as a species, I think it's a question that we will keep asking and asking until the last day that we exist, because there's going to be a last day at some point. The big, the big crunch or heat death, one of the two. At some point, yeah. yeah. That's why astrophysicists are interested in this question yeah. too, because at some point you need to think about what happens after humans. <laughs> right. AI happens after humans. Okay, Ida, it's been, I'm sorry I've taken you so long without talking about successor representations, but <laughs> let's talk about your work a little bit, shall we? <laughs> <clears throat> so we talked about reinforcement learning, you know, writ large, and I mentioned um, this classical dichotomy between model-free reinforcement learning and model-based reinforcement learning. And these days, there's a lot of work being done on how those two systems interact in the brain, uh, you know, and whether they're competitive or cooperative, but there's also a lot of work like your work on successor representations um, that suggest there are in-betweens, uh, in-between algorithms. So maybe you can just start off by telling us what is the successor representation uh, mapping, I suppose, framework, uh -huh. and maybe how it relates to model-free and, and model-based. Of course. So... Imagine if I need to go outside of my apartment and then go outside the house and then go right. And then there is a bakery around the corner that I really like it. Maybe I need to just like walk two blocks towards right. And my model free, if I was a model free agent, I would just say, right, good. And okay, that good is a little bit more quantifiable in terms of uh, discounted expected future value of the action go right, which means what is the, the reward that I expect to get discounted by how far away it is from me if I go right. Mm -hmm. And it has no information about how many blocks away it is. It has no information about what are the streets in between or how many houses there are in between. Now, a model-based reinforcement learner would have some idea of abstraction of the states into discrete states. Let's say that 
the world was such that there were some kind of states um, in the tabular case, there's of course um, continuous situations. I'm gonna make it in the most simple scenario. Mm -hmm. Let's say that this was a grid world. And again, I was supposed to go and go to the bakery. It will have a vector of rewards that tells me what is the reward that I will get for every state that I might occupy and also it tells me what is the probability of transitioning from every state to another on the way to the bakery on the way to the bakery so at the moment when i want to plan to go and buy bread my model free will say right good and my model base would say well i go downstairs and take a step right and then take a step right and then take a step right and it just does that and then at the end of it it figures out that oh and then there is the bakery therefore this is good so it takes me longer it's going to take me longer to make the plan. It's going to take me longer to get there. But at the same time, if all of a sudden one of the streets in between is blocked, Model 3, if somebody says, hey, that street is blocked, Model 3 is still going to go outside and say, right, good. Habitually, one might say. Exactly. Model base is going to say, okay, I need to take... The Right, right, right. Oh, I hit a boundary. So I, I take left, 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 then right, right. So you, you found a detour or something else, but it takes also a lot of time. However, it takes exactly the same amount of time than it took last time to find your way to the bakery. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of unfolding all the probabilities uh, one step at a time, unrolling them in order to compute the expected value before it makes that decision. There are, of course, approaches like the Dyna approach, where a model-based is training the model-free offline. So when I hear that uh, the, the street to the right is actually blocked, so I cannot uh, get to the bakery that is two blocks away, then model-based starts to replay one step at a time the steps to take when I'm not making the decision, and then retrains the model-free so that it takes left and it takes the other path instead. So by the time that I go downstairs, even though Model 3 didn't have the chance to learn and it couldn't do it on its own, it, it goes downstairs and it thinks, oh, left, good. And so uh, some people confuse this idea and they say, oh no, but if you let, it, let the Model 3 train itself, it will learn. It's like, yes, but it needs to actively go to that location, see that it's not getting a reward, and then go the other way. And that's a very powerful distinction between, I guess, um, what Tolman thought in terms of a cognitive map-based approach as opposed to the behaviorist dogma of the time that Tolman was the cognitive revolution or, or part of the cognitive revolution against. And in his case, the ex example was latent learning. Mm -hmm. He observed that if rodents just run around a maze for a while, for a couple of days, without any rewards at all, later when he introduces a reward somewhere in the maze, the rodents are going to be faster at learning the policy to reward than rodents who had never been in the maze. This is against a, the, the behaviorist dogma that you need the reward in order to be able to learn something about the world. Right. So in the case of the model base, it could have been learning the probability of transitions and storing them in its sort of model of the world, or uh, what some call the dynamics of the environment, without having to, um, independently of whether there were rewards or not. Now, there are certain kinds of predictions. Like I said, it does take the same amount of time for the model base, or this, it, it is equally good at going right and left 
whether there is a detour or not, as long as it knows or as long as it has learned that like little um, change in the world, because it's unfolding its all of its probabilities in order to decide what to do. And that was the uh, sort of the key distinction between any approach that is um, combining model-based, model-free, or is model-based, and this other approach that I will talk about in a second, which is somewhere in between. So what is that approach? We said that model-free caches the value of actions, but doesn't care about states. And model-based has the one-step by one-step dynamics of the environment and separately stores rewards. The successor representation caches multi-step dependencies and separately stores uh, rewards and then combines the two of them. The difference that it has with model free it, is that it doesn't cache value of actions. It has some information about the map of the world and uh, because of that, if you just move the reward around, it's going to be still very good at uh, finding the optimal location of reward. And we are very often in environments uh, where the reward moves around, but the environment dynamics change less often than that. However, there are times that the environment's dynamics change. For instance, if you live in New York City, the A train and the F train, they sometimes run in each other's uh, lanes and you know one train and two train do the same thing. So if you want to go to Brooklyn from Columbia University, you might be careful because you might end up at World Trade Center if you fall asleep on a train and it was actually running on the one. So that did not happen to me, but no. it's a thing that has happened to us. It's very specific, I know, because it has happened to someone else. So what happens in the case of the success representation when transition structures change? In that case, if it's just a success representation alone, the way that Peter Diane introduced it in the early 90s, and what happens is that the successor representation has inherited this multi-step map that from here there is a path to the bakery. And it combines it sort of with the location of the reward, which is in this case, I'm going to the bakery. But if I wanted to go, I don't know, to a cafe, then it would have been the reward would have been a different location. The map would have been similar. But if there is a detour or something that maybe I have learned because I, I was going from another direction and I found out that that street is closed, the success representation still has grandfathered that old multi-step relationship between where I am and the location of the bakery. So in the absence of some kind of replay that would piece things together, it's not capable of updating that. But it is capable of updating going to another place for value. So for mm -hmm. instance, if the bakery moved somewhere else, so it just like moved the reward, model free still can't solve it. It would still think right, good, unless it experiences that it goes left. Right. But the successor representation can because we just changed the reward value, uh, the, sorry, the reward vector, but not the map of the environment. Now the, the one that, the, the algorithm that I proposed is SR Dynite combines replay um, together with successor representation. We have another variation of this that combines model-based and the successor representation. Mm. Why is this so different? Because the idea of this conjunctive representation predicts a certain kind of asymmetry in performance on certain kinds of tasks compared to others. Remember, we talked about the importance of AI making errors or you know, artificial agents making errors similar to errors that humans make. And so, uh, that was the, the origin of designing a task 
that that asymmetry will come to be where model base would be expected to perform equally well on all of the conditions. Model free would be expected to perform equally bad on all of the conditions. And the successor representation would be very asymmetric while the successor representation for us replay would have this kind of um, asymmetry, but would be able to do something still as long as it got enough replay. Some sort of compensatory um, mechanism. Um, I would say updating mechanism. So it's capable okay. of updating its own representations offline, as opposed to um, either relying entirely on online computations at the moment of decision, like the model base, which will not be, you know, it, it will be not rational in case you, you want to run away from an animal to a shelter because, you know, you might get eaten before you have the time to process one step at a time all of the things. Mm -hmm. So if you're time constrained at the moment of decision, it would be, it, 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 there would be a pressure that you have a system that can make a decision fast. You want a mechanism for decision making that's fast. Now, the trade-off between model-based and successor representation learning is one is very slow at the moment of decision making, the other takes a lot of memory. It takes a lot of, uh, its, its representations occupy a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, um, you can see how this relates to this idea of depends on the kinds of environment you live in, depends on what kind of uh, decisions you need to make in order to, I guess the word is survive. <laughs> Something else we've discussed. Yeah. And uh, so, or solve the task or whatever the sort of intermediate goal is towards that survival. Find your mating partner. For instance. <laughs> so all of these are interesting algorithms. To the best of my knowledge, we don't have any evidence of exclusively model-free anything in the brain. And we don't have an evidence of exclusively model-based anything in the brain. And in fact, uh, if you look at even the dopamine system, there are situations where you see things you don't expect to see in model-based in the brain, which is something that we discussed in a paper in 2017 in Plus Computational Biology uh, with my very talented colleague, uh, Evan Rasek, and um, together with also uh, Nathaniel Daw, Sam Gershman, and Matt Bodfinick. And in that paper, we discussed the success representation DINA approach mm -hmm. as a middle ground between uh, model-based and model-free. And it's a computational paper, but we simulate um, uh, examples that are the detour task and some other tasks that in our other paper with at Nature Human Behavior, where we had the tasks that are asymmetric, uh, we sort of show them. And the asymmetry is exactly in the examples I've already given you. What happens if my favorite restaurant or bakery moves somewhere else, which is just the change in the vector of rewards as opposed to change in the environment? Uh, but what happens when the dynamics or transition structure changes, like mm, train two runs on train one, then I need to sort of change my plan because of a different reason. It's not that my goal location or the reward has changed. It's that the transition structures in between to get there has changed. So I need to change my map or update my map adequately in order to be able to still get to the same location. And uh, the prediction is that Success representation alone would not be able to perform the transition revaluation condition where you have to, or transition transfer, uh, whereas uh, it can be very good at solving the reward revaluation where the location of the bakery changes. Model free is not good at any of them, and model base is equally good at both. And SR Dyna is better at reward evaluation, can solve the other one, but it's a little worse because it depends on this extra computation to. Uh, update its maps. So if you take an average of 100 times an agent doing it or different agents doing it, 
it would be on average worse than how, how good they are at doing the reward evaluation, even given noise and everything else. By the extra comp computation, you mean the offline replay? That's right. Yeah. So that's uh, what I can say about the basic uh, sort of principles of it. You know, you started off by mentioning that there there isn't really good evidence for a strictly model-free or a strictly model-based uh, system in our brains. But it, our brains, uh, speaking of the hardware, there's a ton of it. And the capability to implement many algorithms is inherent in, in the hardware. And this relates to what we were discussing earlier. But do you think that we are just running all of the possible reinforcement learning algorithms all the time in parallel and didn't switching the outputs? Or are there a set of four standard RL algorithms in our brain that we switch among? You know, what's the granularity of, of the just the, the sheer volume of types of reinforcement algorithms we're running? That's a great question. And I can... I'm comfortable saying that while I have some uh, speculative ideas in this domain, I don't think that we are at a place where we know the answer to mm -hmm. that. There are some people who would like to think, oh, it's cognitive maps all the way down, or some people might want to think, oh, it's success representations all the way down, or if it's model-based all the way down, or it's model-free and model-based and then the combination. And I understand the appeal of those ideas, but I genuinely think we are not at a place to know all the different kinds of algorithms that are happening at different um, cognitive domains and different parts of the brain. And even the same part of the brain could have very different kinds of algorithms. Again, especially in humans, this yeah. is very much the case. Yeah. So I'm, I'm comfortable saying that um, while I might have some um, ideas or, or theories for the next steps to take, uh, I, I don't have the final answer. Hmm. There is this spectrum of needing to know what you need to do at the very next step and versus super long-term planning. Uh, and a lot of what you do is, you know, related to how our memory relates to our future planning. But as I was learning about successor representations, what jumped out at me uh, was thinking because you can skip connections essentially, and you don't have to run like in model-based learning, you have to run the entire simulation to get from point A to point Z, right? You have to go mm -hmm. through all the letters Whereas in successor, uh, you can skip over them because you cache uh, the various stages in between, right? And it jumped out at me that that might be a way for us to uh, develop heuristics or um, intuitions about what to do without necessarily uh, running the entire model in our head. You just kind of know what to do in a given situation, and a successor representation like structure might and might underlie that that kind of uh, process. Is there anything to that? Uh, I think I share your intuition, especially when we are speaking about. Um, yeah, see what I did there. I, I saw what you did there. <laughs> especially when it's multi-scale successor representations that we are yeah, talking about. Yeah, that, yeah. And at different scales, you can have uh, certain kinds of hunches because you have lumped together a bunch of um, different things so you can actually go to the next step uh, more freely. This is something that I'm, I'm quite excited. I've been having conversations um, uh, with some folks uh, about this and hopefully hopefully um, this will lead to some some future work um, and there have been other people who've tried this out which is 
this idea that there are particular structures also that we start to learn um, after having these kinds of sort of multi-step things. And later on, not only is it, my, do we, do, are we more likely to perhaps have these kinds of multi-step AC, AD, AF uh, hunches, uh, which is different from the Remerge model, mm -hmm. because it will need to sort of do the recurrence every time. And their argument to us would be that, hey, you could get the same intuitions with just very fast recurrence. So just to be fair to them, I'm going to voice that position as well. But there is also a way in which if you have these kinds of multi-step multi landscapes, you might be able to abstract the relational structure. And then if you have a memory for those structures, next time that I'm testing a hypothesis, I can just think in terms of evidence I can look for to search which, which of the, the underlying structures might be the case. And this is very similar to the idea of schema, for instance. Yeah. I am capable, very comfortably capable, of going to infinite number of airports, as long as they have the same structure <laughs> in terms of the larger scale graphs. I mean, if they let me in, I'm Iranian, so I should remember <laughs> oh, that. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I don't know why. Yeah, you're, you're protesting, but yeah. I'm not, no, no, uh, I'm just saying. Oh, it's just yeah. No, I'm not protesting your statement. Uh, yeah. Just you, you just slipped it in. That's what I was reacting yeah. to. Yeah. It's it's my life. So uh, so there is an interesting way in which I'm capable of going to infinite number of airports, and as long as there are the same similar number of steps in them, right. and there is not something out of the blue. Um, the colors might be different, the location, the size, the buildings, how many floors, which floor something is. So many things can be different. And the same schema will apply to the idea of airport. Or I can go to a lot of different restaurants. Sure. As long as it's not some seven-course meal that has partaken too many forks and knives, mm. I think I can manage to, to, to apply and to, to subscribe to the same schema across them. One of the famous examples is just ordering, you know, the... the uh, structure of back and forth with the waiter. Hello, how are you? Drinks, menu, etc. And in that sort of, I don't remember who it was, or where that example comes from, but that's one of, in my head one of the classic examples of this sort of schema. Yeah. So, so, so I think that there is a way that there might be a link between these multi-step ADAF uh, approaches and the extraction of structures that are more abstract, uh, like schema. Uh, that don't need to be uh, very detailed in terms of the uh, implementations. So the the, the remerge idea might not work well mm. for that kind of an idea mm -hmm. of um, uh, sort of schema or, or or testing different structures. I'm sure that they can come up with something at DeepMind that would solve it, but um, <laughs> that's not what I'm. I'm not suggesting that that's not possible. But I I, I wonder whether in principle it just um, simple principles of conjunctive learning might naturally give rise to this without us needing to inject a lot of extra um, inbuilt hmm. um, constraints or rules or architecture. So I, we're just about out of time. I want to just bring it way back out and ta and end on just a broad reinforcement learning type questions. Yeah, of course. So, so one of the things that reinforcement learning is famous for is that it uh, spans all of Mars' famous levels, computational level algorithmic level and implementation mm. level that there's evidence you know mm -hmm. uh, and, and we can make sense of it at, at all those different levels if <laughs> if you were going to be known on your you know to headstone uh for discovering 
uh, something, you know, if you had to choose between being known for discovering something at the implementation level, at the mechanistic level, that changed the shape of our understanding of of a computational level process, or of discovering or describing a new computational level process that then we could use to constrain our knowledge and and move forward and discover new things about the implementation level, which which would you choose? Does that make sense? And which would you choose? Yeah, I think I, I'm I think implementation level is not the one that makes my heart beat or wakes me up in the morning with a sense of joy or <laughs> motivation to do things. Mm-hmm. Not to discount it, I'm very happy that there are a lot of colleagues that are doing a great job at it, but I think that the computational algorithmic uh, sort of levels are sort of more, uh, I hope that I can contribute something there. Yeah. And even maybe even scoping out of it, because um, if we're then thinking about multi-agent settings, we might even need to go even a step higher. Uh, so I, I think that if, if, if there was something to be... Uh, that that would outlive me if there was an idea. We all hope that some ideas outlive us. Yeah. yeah. I hope that it's at multiple levels, but I definitely hope that it's at a higher level enough so that it can inspire a lot more work. Well, I wasn't trying to, to isolate the levels, but so, so the, traditionally um, the way that science seems to work is that you have some computational level hypothesis, right? And then, and then a lot of people say, well, the only thing the implementation level is good for is just confirming the uh, what you thought to be the computational level process, right? After you name the computational level process, and very, very rarely, if at all, if ever, does does work in, at the implementation level then translate up. Let's say if you're going, if you have to give a direction up to the computational level to change a computational level uh, description or framework of thinking. Uh, and so that's why I was wondering, because it'd be pretty rare and pretty powerful to be able to do that, I think. I think the interesting thing is that uh, implementation level can sometimes help us if our goal is for all of them to be, let's say, human oriented or biologically plausible. The implementation level can sometimes help us um, choose between um, different computational sort of theories. So there is a, you know, at the meta level, when you're deciding between different theories, it might be helpful to think about a kind of a recurrence at different levels that are going on. Mm -hmm. And so um, all that I want to say is while I will always look at the implementation level for (laughs) correcting the theoretical level, it's just that the thing that I hope that will outlive me is something that is at a higher level. Oh, it's so much more fun just to think about in, in terms of, you know, in terms of thinking theoretical is so much more fun. Final question. Uh, I can't let you get away um, before I ask you this. It seems like the reinforcement learning world is a world of cold mechanical um, processes that could all go on under the hood of our awareness, of our consciousness, of our subjective experience. And I'm wondering if if you think that these algorithms uh, and related computational level processes, if reinforcement learning work will contribute to our knowledge of how subjective awareness comes about. <laughs> you have to be careful with your words when you talk about this stuff. So yeah. They say emerges, that's a bad word, you know, <laughs> things like that. So, Yeah. Uh, you got to also be careful when you're responding to it. Of course. 
So uh, in response to the cold idea, I have to say that, uh, sorry about the pun, but reinforcement learning is rewarding. But Well, I, I, I don't mean that people are cold who study <laughs> no, reinforcement learning. No, I know, learning. I know. Um, but the idea of like learning a structure, learning a map, and it just seems very un... Uh, unconscious? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I have thought about this. What would be a theory? Uh, I mean, I wonder what even would be, no matter how fuzzy and warm, what would be an approach to this idea of um, subjective experience? So, so there's a lot of work on subjective value, right, in the neuroeconomics world. And I, I thought you might tie it back into that. That's the way I see in for a p- potential answer from someone of your ilk. I think that there are two directions about this. One thing is... Um, I think it it's it gets similar to what I guess uh, uh, Yasha Bengio works on these days. So it, it, there is a sense in which if you have different inner mechanism and one is just like doing things and one is just trying to understand this thing and connect it to other things, and it goes back to Bernard Bernard Barr's idea of global workspace and what he thought uh, was the emergence of. Um, I'm using it in a colloquial yes, term. of course. As a colloquial term. Uh, emergence of subjective experience or phenomena, the sort of qualia, if you want. So um, there is that kind of approach to it, which is this idea of there's going to be some need to constrain which information from all of these parallel streams that are coming in to choose from and which ones to pay internal attention to. So there is a mental action. There is a requirement to coordinate them. And one idea is that that seemingly cold mechanism is actually what's giving rise to this sense and potentially um, mixed with a cocktail of various kinds of neurotransmitters that happen in order to center everything in one direction. Mm. And uh, I guess the Edel Montanoni idea was that, well, that's linked to some notion of complexity and uh, you need some sense of high complexity, but their notion of phi is... Um, it kind of is good for smaller scale, but it's unclear how we can think of it in terms of large number of neurons. So yes, we need large enough number of neurons and parallel processing so that there is a need to somehow take mental actions to choose between them. And then, so there is a whole long history of it and I'm not going to get into it, but depending on which you subscribe to, uh, reinforcement learning could potentially contribute. But the the reason I'm mentioning all of them is to highlight that at the end of the day, it would depend on the philosophy that you subscribe to when you want to approach the question of subjective experience. When it comes to the subjective value and the different things that might be of value to you, I think the work in proto-value function and some work that um, hopefully we will <laughs> sort of um, uh, uh, advance on how do we evolve certain sort of uh, different uh, dimensions of uh, value? All of these things could speak to that in ways that perhaps is not the way that uh, uh, economics is looking at it, but it's a little bit more towards the way that is closer to how us neuroscientists might think about. So I think that there, there, some parts of your question, there might be already existing RL approaches that are answering, and other parts of your question will completely depend on the philosophical stance that we are taking um, in order to model, understand, and approach a particular human capacity. That's great. Bringing it back to philosophy, as always. <laughs>
Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, this has been really fun. I wish we had a lot more time to talk and, and maybe in the future we can, but um, continued success uh, and, and thanks. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.